The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. You know, every single one of us uh, value, puts value on something. And depending on that level of value that we assign to something, we are going to prioritize it in terms of time. It may be time with family, it might be recreation, maybe it's liter- literature, maybe it's uh, banjo, right, Dave? Okay. Uh, but we all have these things in our lives that we give priority to because those things, they, they matter to us. And we've been going through the letter of 1 Timothy now for, for some time, and today we hit the middle of the road, and at this point, Paul has been building his case up and and building it more and more for the case for the importance of the church. In our passage today, Paul is basically saying, of all the things that God has created, the church as an institution is the most important out in our world right now and for all time. And today, in the middle of this letter, it is the the pinnacle of his argument. In this passage today, he offers us the choicest doctrine of the church as well as the highest doctrine of Christ and he weds them together to convince us that church matters so let's read the passage and then we'll break it down in 1st Timothy chapter 3 only three verses this is what he writes I write these things to you hoping to come to you soon but if I should be delayed I have written so that you may know Uh, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in in the world, taken up in glory." This is the word of God. So if we want to get the heart to what the importance of the church is, the first thing we need to know is what the church is. In order to know its importance, we need to know what we're talking about here. You know, when I was teaching elementary music, uh, there was an exercise that I would do at the beginning of every school year, uh, with, really with my third through sixth grade classes. And it was something that I, I called my job, your job. I would take my whiteboard and I would divide it by two. And on one side of the whiteboard, it would be labeled my job. And on the other side, it would be labeled your job. And I would ask the kids, hey, what do you think that your job is uh, here? And what do you think my job is? And oftentimes, you know, there would be silly answers and we'd laugh about it and we'd move on. Uh, but... Um, we, uh, we would end up establishing norms and boundaries together so that they would have ownership of the class, and, and I would also have a structure by which I could run things, uh, you know, run things in, in particular order, and during our times together, they may forget about something, and I would say something like, well, do you think that part of your time here you should do fill in the blank? Or during when we are together, do you think I should be doing you know, fill in the blank. And we would end up having this great chart that I could refer to throughout the, the year. I would put it on a poster and I would, I would put it on my wall 
uh, behind me so that if things were uh, happening in the classroom where they weren't fulfilling their end of the agreement, I could just point to this and say, hey, friends, remember, in the beginning of the year, we had uh, agreed together that this was going to be the norms and the standards by which you were going to be doing. And it was helpful for me, too, uh, to know what my job was because that helped to have an orderly classroom as well. Uh, as expectations and norms. And it empowered them, created structure, and it just really helped uh, fulfill the mission of what we were doing there in elementary music together. And though there may not be a formal My Job and Your Job poster over here in the church office or in our house right now, um, or really anywhere you go, there are always understood and expected norms. And in verse 15, Paul tells Timothy that the purpose of his writing to Timothy is so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. In other words, there are certain household codes uh, in, uh, when it comes to church life. The problem is, is that you and I are really not that much different than, uh, uh, pardon me for saying this, we're not that much different than elementary children. We're forgetful. We're rebellious. Uh, we are selfish. And we're sometimes unkind to each other. And it takes someone like Paul to write a letter like this as sort of like the poster on the, the wall that says, as a Christian church, hey, this is your job. And this is God's job. That's why in chapter 1, he wrote all about false teachers saying what their danger was and, and why they were not going to help in church. There was an expectation that the curriculum that is taught within the church would help people grow in their faith, not lead them further into weird and, and silly beliefs. That's why Paul reoriented their thinking on the gospel of who Jesus is, what he did and what he's doing right now. In chapter 2, it's why he recalibrated us to help us understand what is the nature of prayer and what it does. It's why he makes such a big deal about gender roles in the church. It's why he is so insistent on the importance of church leadership. And it's why he is going to teach Timothy, uh, the church of Ephesus, and essentially Emmanuel Baptist Church, so many other issues that we are going to encounter in the coming weeks. There is a household code when it comes to the church. And what this uh, points toward, then, is one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to help us understand what the church is. In verse 15, again, he says, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And so when Paul uses such a metaphor, it should immediately put images of family into our minds. You know, the Rue household consists of me and Julie and Jonah and Silas and Lydia and Jude. And you, you could put uh, Oscar and Gloria, our pets, but uh, you know, more so our, our household is the six people that live there. If we were to have any more children, whether it be biological or through adoption, uh, they would be full-fledged members of the Rue household. It wouldn't matter if we lived on the street that we currently live right now, or it wouldn't matter if we lived north of town or south of town or across the world. Our household is when we are together because it's the people who are in it. 
And so when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us that we are adopted into God's family. It's fairly common today to hear this, this phrase that, that comes up where, where someone will say, you know what, we are, we are all God's children. Friends, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. In order to be adopted into God's family, it is only through, by God's grace, through faith in him. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, He, meaning God the Father, predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his, his will. So really, there's only two households. There's no, there's no in-between. Either you're in the household of Satan or you're in the household of God. Scripture is very clear about that. So in the church then, it's the household of God consisting of those whom he has drawn to himself out of the abusive power of the devil. With that being said, it's crucial then that we view each other as brothers and sisters. Because we are bonded together in Christ. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We are closer to each other than blood relatives. The men and women of Afghanistan right now that are on the run and being hunted down by the Taliban are closer in relation to us than our own kindred who don't know Christ as their Savior. So now it makes sense why Paul then would say in verse 15, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. If we are brothers and sisters, then we ought to strive for them to grow in truth, not in falsity. If we're brothers and sisters, then we should be pointing each other to the magnificent grace that is in God. If we're brothers and sisters, we ought to lift up those, uh, those brothers and sisters of ours who are having a tough time with things. If we're brothers and sisters, then we ought to pray for one another and pray that others would be adopted as well. If we are brothers and sisters, then we ought to arrange ourselves in such a way that everyone uh, knows what each other is responsible for, what the sisters are to do, what the brothers are to do. And we'll see in the coming weeks that the my job, your job model comes more and more into play because we are a family. And we have the family goal to help each other make Christ look good. The church matters because at its heart, it is the family of God. It doesn't matter where we meet. We're a family that's bonded out of the love of God for us and for each other. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to do today is grasp the importance of the church. We need to see the immense importance of the church. When Julie and I were first married, uh, we, we didn't exactly know where the money was going to come from. Uh, I, well, we both had just graduated about two months prior uh, from college. Uh, to, uh, we graduated two months prior before we got married, and Julie was beginning graduate school in August, and 
And though I had, uh, you know, a teaching license with the state of Minnesota, there was no prospect for any positions that had opened up yet at the time. And so when we were looking for places, we, we took that kind of place that we thought that we could afford, you know, not knowing what would, uh, what would uh, uh, come forward for us in the future. And uh, it was one of those kinds of apartments that I never really hoped that we have to live in again. But it's the kind of place, though, that I, wouldn't, I would never have traded that, that year for anything. There were so many things about this apartment that helped us grow together. Uh, besides it being infested with box elder bugs, and if you think that box elder bugs are bad this year, uh, that was nothing compared to, to our uh, apartment uh, that year. Uh, and, you know, despite the fact that climate control was so bad that the ingredients in our cupboards were melted together, and we couldn't really separate them out for cooking. And despite the fact that the heater was uh, sort of, well, the thermostat was blocked because it was locked out from us and we couldn't change anything. Well, we did. We used toothpicks and we still changed it. But <laughs> that was uh, something that we had to live with. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that we had neighbors under us that were constantly loud, constantly partying, and maybe keyed my car a few times, we still... Uh, saw that this was a great place to be in together. But of all those things, it was the foundation that was the most weird and, uh, and at times very frightening. If you were sitting in the living room and you were facing the kitchen, you would notice in the living room that the bookshelves were leaning in one direction. And if you looked in the kitchen, you'd notice that the refrigerator and other units were leaning in the other uh, direction. I had to laugh whenever we'd have guests come over if they didn't know about our apartment because there's a foundational transition in the hallway going to the kitchen. And if they didn't know about it, there was a possibility that they might stagger a little bit as they uh, go into the kitchen. And foundations are, are critically important. Uh, if the foundation goes bad or it's not attended to, the whole building is going to come toppling down. I'm glad to see that last time we were in Mankato, that house is still standing. I don't know if they've done anything. They painted it, but I don't know about the foundation. You know, think about that 13-story condo that collapsed in Florida this summer. One of the uh, suspicions that they have is that the foundation went bad, that they weren't keeping up with the maintenance that needed to happen uh, because uh, foundation is so important. And when it comes to who God has chosen to be the foundation for upholding the truth of God, Paul says this in verse 15, I've written so that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, when we look at this verse, we have to be very careful and somewhat precise in how we understand what Paul is saying. Paul is not taking the position that the Roman Catholic Church took and indeed still takes on this. And that would be to take the position that what Paul is saying is that truth is derived from the church. That something isn't true unless the church says that it's, that it's true. The church said it so, and so it is so. That would be a good example of the cart driving the horse. Rather, what Paul is saying is that the church is the foundation by which the truth is proclaimed. The church is the foundation holding up what is true. The church is the pillar by which the beauty of God's grace is displayed. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy here, 
whom he has sent to Ephesus in order to clean up the mess that is happening at the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the uh, third largest city in Asia Minor, uh, and uh, at the time their claim to fame was that it had the temple of the, the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis is the, uh, the Greek version of the Roman god Diana, but in Ephesus, it was something completely different too. Whereas in the Greek understanding, uh, Artemis was the goddess of something, in, in Ephesus, it was that she was the goddess of fertility. I believe she was the goddess of wild animals, I think, in, in, in Greek. Am I right? Okay, awesome. Uh, but here in Ephesus, she was the, the goddess of fertility, and so in Ephesus, it was famous for this massive temple. And I have a drawing up there of what they, they believe it sort of looked like. It was uh, situated on a hill. Uh, there was also a, a uh, building for Zeus in town, but this was the building that would have caught your attention if you were coming into Ephesus or you were in Ephesus itself. It was dedicated to her worship. The temple is, is rubble now, uh, but it probably looked much like other Roman temples with its large block foundation there and its pillars holding up uh, what is something pointing to the sky and telling the world, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Paul is essentially then saying, wait a minute, no, no, that is not true. That thing that's holding up the real truth, the truth about the true God and what he has done for sinful people isn't a stone building. It is the church of God. It is the foundation and the pillars that are holding up the roof that point to the beauty of God who made the heavens and who made the earth. Now, thinking through the implications of this uh, throughout the week, honestly, I can't help but get a little discouraged. And I get discouraged because I'm thinking about what God has said about the church as it essentially being a flashlight for the community, the one institution that God has ordained to bring a light into the world. And yet many of God's people don't take it seriously. It's not something that they're dedicated to. We've become such an individualized culture that we think that we can live the Christian life apart from the church. And friends, we weren't designed that way. We were designed to be the church. And, and, and unfortunately, the events of the past year has deceived us into thinking that the church is really nothing but an hour or so on a Sunday morning, and it really doesn't matter whether you're in your jammies watching on Facebook or whether you are in church itself. The church, by definition, can't be virtual. And it can't be something that you have a a casual relationship with. It is the, the family of God coming together to worship and to hold up the truth of Christ crucified and resurrected to a lost world. So when Paul says in verse 15 here that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, it challenges you and me to uh, take inventory of our priorities. How important is church to you? Does it match up with Paul's vision? 
How quickly are we ready to throw church to the side if something else comes up on Sunday morning? I know the church isn't perfect, but the one who we worship is. And he called us to be the beacon that is calling people to join his family. So we need to see the importance of the church. And finally, we need to affirm the truths that the church stands on. Affirm the truths that the church stands on. Paul closes out his letter here with the, uh, the climax of the entire letter. Now remember that this entire letter is written so that he can help Timothy restore order to the chaos that's happening in Ephesus. And so he is, uh, he is writing, uh, has been building and building and building, building up, and now it's as if he is shouting at us, the church matters. And it matters because of what he writes in verse 16. And verse 16 is probably a very early Christian creed, which is a, uh, a statement or a series of statements of belief, or it was an early Christian hymn. And Paul, seeing its relevance, inserts it here. Most certainly, this mystery of godliness is great, is what he writes. This mystery is not typically what we, we think of in terms of mystery in our culture. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as uh, something not understood or beyond understanding. Or you and I may think of it like a whodunit sort of story. That we are reading a, a murder mystery or watching some sort of mystery show. But when the Bible refers to mystery, it's not either of those things. Mystery is the fact that God the Father planned from eternity uh, past the foundation of the earth to send his son Jesus Christ to live, die, rise, and, and ascend on our behalf in order to reconcile us with God. It was a mystery in the sense that it was something that was held long ago secret, but has now been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Now, it might seem strange here to say that this mystery or this gospel is godliness. I mean, isn't godliness something that we work toward? Don't we work towards being more holy and, and, and more pleasing to him? And yes and no, but in this particular context, he is saying that we are professing a godliness that we don't get ourselves by working it out. He is professing a godliness that is given to us because of what Christ has done for us. Look at what the creed says. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in contrast to what these false teachers have been giving to the church at Ephesus, Paul says, this is the real stuff. This ain't a Hydrox cookie. This is Oreo, folks. This is the good stuff. It's the essence of what the church holds up at the foundation as the foundation and the pillars of the church. God was made flesh in Jesus Christ. To manifest means to, to display or show something. In this case, Jesus became a man. He took on human form. He wasn't content to just simply be a God who, who looks down and observes what what people were doing and going through. But folks, he came down and 
and experienced life. He learned what it was like to be made fun of. He learned what it was like to go through the grieving process. He learned the satisfaction of a hard day's work. He even tasted death. And this wasn't just an earthly vacation for him. He lived sinlessly and died sacrificially to take our place, to take the punishment that we deserved upon himself in order to restore us to God the Father. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, Paul writes here that he was vindicated by the Spirit. That is, that the Holy Spirit, in raising Jesus from the dead, proved that what Jesus promised would happen wasn't him just blowing smoke at his friends. He rose. He did what he said he was going to do. And not as some half-life zombie, but in glorified form, in a glorified body. Three days prior, he had been whipped to the point where there were some folks that when they were flogged in the way that Jesus was, would actually die before they went to a cross because of loss of blood. Three days before this, he had what was uh, almost like railroad spikes shoved through his wrists and through his feet and nailed into a piece of wood. He had a sword shoved in his side to prove whether or not he was dead. And yet here he is, not even complaining, as if nothing is wrong. He ain't limping. He's not crying in agony. He's better than he ever has been before. Why? Because the Spirit vindicated him and provided victory over sin and death for you. And news like this doesn't stay quiet. If you knew someone who had passed away a week or two ago, and they came knocking at your door one one night, and you opened up the door and saw them, you would either call the cops, you'd call a shrink, or you'd tell everybody about it. Or maybe you do all three. But that's what happened. After rising from the dead, Jesus stayed with his disciples for 40 days and he ascended to heaven. And it wasn't long after that that his disciples were scattered throughout the world. Became the fastest moving world religion ever. Because this is true. People saying, I saw with my own eyes a man who died and who rose from the dead. And he's still alive today. This is God in the flesh. And this is happening today. The church is going out and it's proclaiming the news of Jesus to the world. And still today, people's lives are changing through the power of the gospel. All over the world, people are giving their lives to Jesus Christ. They're trusting him. They're trusting him here. They're trusting him in Canada. They're trusting him in Brazil. They're trusting him in Europe. And it's a little known fact that the, the fastest growing church right now is the church in Iran of all places. A place where if you give your life over to Christ, there's a very good chance that you are going to be giving up your physical life if you are caught. The gospel is powerful, and it's the church that is the foundation and the pillars of the truth. And it's this truth that we stand on. So if you're here today, and you've never affirmed this truth about Jesus, what are you waiting for? 
You may have come here today, but the church is calling you and saying, this Jesus is good and he is worthy of your trust. Will you today repent of your sins and go to Christ in faith and be, be absolved of your guilt, of your uh, past sins, of, of all the hurts and the anxieties and the worries that you're facing? There's healing in him. If you're here today and the church has been something that you haven't really committed to, what are you waiting for? It's the church that is the beacon and hope for the community. Church matters. And unless, uh, but it doesn't matter unless you are part of it. And after everything that we've talked about in the last however many weeks, the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what is the Holy Spirit telling us today? And the follow-up question then is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? The church matters. And you matter. And we need you. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. You are welcome to pass this message along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Emmanuel Baptist Church. This message has been made available by the generous supporters of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For additional information about how you can partner with Emmanuel, please visit us at www.emmanuelmora.com. There you will find more free messages and links to ministry opportunities to help you grow in your faith. If you are watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button to always receive the latest messages. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mora, Minnesota. Knowing Christ and making Him known.